A few of you asked about our daughter's baby. Thank you for, uh, for your interest. Our daughter Elena lives in Georgia, and uh, she, her due date was last Wednesday, and uh, no news yet. So uh, faith is there with her, and uh, hopefully soon, any, any day, any time, I think, now. So appreciate your interest there. And then I also want to welcome my son Luke and his wife Daviana here with us today. So uh, Luke is my youngest son, and they live in South Carolina. And I know it seems kind of funny that my wife is in Georgia, and they are here, but uh, actually Daviana's brother is graduating this weekend from Grinnell College. And so just schedule-wise, it worked out, and, and uh, we're kind of disappointed Faith wasn't here when they were here, but uh, I'm delighted to have them, and I hope that you'll get to know them as well. So welcome to Luke and Daviana. We are going to be looking at the book of Titus today, so please join me there, and we will be in Titus chapter 3. The way we are thinking about this little letter from Paul to Titus is that the theme of the book is learning and living. One of the dangers of learning a lot, knowing things, having an understanding of, let's call it, truth, is that it can lead to an attitude of superiority. The more you know, or the more you think you know, or the more that you are aware of that possibly other people are not knowledgeable about, the more likely is that possibility that you'll develop a feeling of, I, I have something others don't. I know more than others do. And it can just creep into our thinking as an attitude of superiority. It's at least possible to be perceived that way. Because, as Christians, we want to tell people, about truth and about Christ and about the Word of God. And so it can come across in some situations as an attitude of, I'm better, I'm smarter than you. Or I think another possible danger in learning and living is that we can isolate ourselves from others. We can withdraw from people around us. And by that I mean especially people who are not connected to, not part of, the body of Christ, the church of Christ, the group we call Christians. And there are legitimate cautions. We have um, uh, ideas that are concerning to us that are legitimate about the world around us. We should protect ourselves from that and should take caution to not be influenced by it. But that does not mean that we cut ourselves off from people around us. Or I would say this too, we could just become apathetic. We can become absorbed and consumed with truth, with living for God, learning and living, and then become apathetic about the people around us and not really care how they live or even what their ultimate destiny is. Well, we're coming to a section in the book of Titus that emphasizes this idea that we should not have an attitude of superiority toward others, And in fact, instructions that that guide us in how we should engage with the world around us and with the community around you. And this next section in Titus emphasizes the attitudes as well as the actions that we take. And I'm summarizing it with with the word humble, and you'll see why here in just a minute. And, And calling our study this morning how the gospel keeps us humble. 
So look with me at Titus chapter 3, and let me um, start reading. I'm actually going to read chapter 2, verse 15, because it's really kind of a bridge into from what Paul wrote previously into what he's about to say. So let me, let me start in Titus 2, verse 15. He says, Speak these things, exhort, rebuke with all authority, let no one despise you. And then chapter 3, verse 1. Remind them. So Paul tells Titus to remind the people, the Christians in Crete, remind them to be subject to rulers and authorities, to obey, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to be peaceable, gentle, showing all humility to all men. For we ourselves were also once foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving various lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. But when the kindness and the love of God our Savior toward man appeared, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us, through the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us abundantly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, that, having been justified by his grace, we should become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. So Paul is here instructing Titus what to teach the Christians on the island of Crete. Um, Evidently, Crete was a pretty rough place to live, and especially to live as a Christian. There's a Greek historian named Polybius who said this regarding the people of Crete. The Cretans, owing to their ingrained lust for wealth, are involved in constant broils. And I think by broils, the idea is heated conflicts, controversy. Both public and private, and in murders and civil wars. This historian goes on to say, it would be impossible to find, except in some rare instances, personal conduct more treacherous or a public policy more unjust than in Crete. So it's like every man for himself. Everybody's out to get more, more money, seek pleasure. And there was an attitude and even a social environment of injustice. And the Christians were called to be different in this society. And there's certainly some similarities to the world in which we live today. Some of those descriptions could be said of, of ours. So we are called to be different, but we're not called to be arrogant. And the way that we interact with people we encounter is not only to be different in action, but also very distinct, very Christ-like in our attitudes as well and how we treat them. Now, last time we were in Titus chapter 2, starting there in verse 11, and and there Paul presented a theologically rich, gospel-saturated motivation for how Christians live. He started with the word for, back in chapter 2, verse 11, and then described the grace of God and the elements, the components of God's saving provision through Christ. He does something similar here. And you notice in verse 3, chapter 3, verse 3, he gives instructions in verses 1 and 2. And then in verse 3, he says, 4. 
So now he's introducing the reason. He gives the instruction, and then he introduces the reason with, again, a very theologically packed, gospel-saturated presentation and formula of how God provides for and accomplishes our salvation. So we see guidance for how we engage with various people in our society, summarized at the end of verse 2, showing all humility to all men. And then he gives the reason, starting in verse 3. Now, grammatically, that phrase at the end of verse 2, showing all humility to all men, summarizes what he just said. So he gives these instructions, treat other people this way, relate to authorities this way, relate to other people in these ways. And then he, he summarizes it all by saying, showing all humility to all men. And as one author says, this is the clear concern of the whole paragraph showing all humility to all men. So that's why I'm taking that thought and making it the theme of of our message here today. Be humble in how you treat everyone because of how God has treated you. That would be a pretty good summary of what we're looking at here today. All humility in that phrase means complete humility. It means to the the fullest degree of humility. It also means in every circumstance, with, in every situation, regardless of how, how unwelcoming it might be to your gentle, humble approach, or that person might be. And he says to all people. So this, this obviously includes every individual, Christians and non-Christians, church people and community people, people who like you and people who don't. He says we're to show humility to them. So let's start with, with Paul's instruction here. We'll talk about that first. So what does gospel-shaped humility look like if the gospel makes us humble or should make us humble? What does that look like? And I'm, and I'm going to think about it this way. How should the people around us experience our gospel-shaped humility? Because he is talking about these different groups of people. He talks about rulers and authorities, uh, other individuals. Verse 2, no one, speak evil of no one, peaceable, gentle, and then humility to all men. So he's talking about how the people around us encounter us and how they experience our gospel-shaped humility. And I'm going to categorize all these words, this list, in a couple of ways. First of all, he talks about your response to authority. Be subject to rulers and all authorities. He's primarily referring to the civil government and the people who are its agents. To be subject to means that you recognize their role. You recognize that they are in a position of authority over you, and you volitionally, volitionally accept their position and their role and their authority in your life. So you make a choice. That's what it means to subject yourself. You make the choice to accept their authority and to place yourself under it. I want to look at two passages quickly that relate to this. So flip back to Romans chapter 13. Book of Romans chapter 13. Paul gave a more detailed explanation of this idea of how Christians respond, especially to civil authority here in Romans chapter 13. And let me read this for us and just make a few brief comments along the way. So look at Romans 13 verse 1. He says in Romans 13 1, let every soul be subject to, same, same phraseology, same concept, the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and the authorities that exist are appointed by God. So if you, if you want to jot down a little little word here to hang this on. 
recognize, recognize that the authorities in our lives are God-ordained. Just recognize that. Therefore, whoever resists the authority, resists the ordinance of God. And those who resist will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers are not a terror to good works, but to evil. Do you want to be unafraid of the authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. For he is God's minister to you for good. But if you do evil, be afraid. For he does not bear the sword in vain. He is God's minister and avenger to execute wrath on him who practices evil. So another word I would use here is to not resist So he calls Christians to not resist those authorities. And then verse 5, Therefore you must be subject not only because of wrath, but also for conscience sake. For because of this you also pay taxes. He even touches on that issue. For they are God's ministers attending continually to this very thing. Now look at verse 7. Therefore render to all their due. So here is what these civil authorities are worthy of in God's estimation and according to his direction. Taxes to whom taxes are due, customs to whom customs, and then fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. So I'm going to add the word respect here, respect. So he instructs us to respect those civil authorities. Then turn over to 1 Timothy chapter 2. 1 Timothy chapter 2. I've noticed something in our Wednesday night gatherings and the prayer sheet that's handed out and even hear this in the the prayers of some and appreciate it very much, and that is to uh, follow this instruction that we have in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. 1 Timothy 2, 1 and 2. Paul says, Therefore I exhort first of all that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men. And then he specifies in verse 2, For kings and all who are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and and reverence. So he's instructing Timothy as a church leader to implement into the life of the church prayer for their governmental leaders. So you could add to to, uh, recognize and not resist and respect to, to request, to make prayer to God in their behalf. He says in verse 3, this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior. And then he links it to, again, a theological gospel specific description here in verse 4, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth, and then describes Christ as the one mediator. So there's a gospel connection here, and we're going to touch on that in a little bit. So back in Titus, when he says, be subject to those rulers and authorities and, and to obey, that's what he's talking about, primarily those civil authorities. Now we might disagree with the people, in government, we might disagree with policies, we might disagree with politics, but we are called to respect the position and the individuals who hold those positions and to follow the laws. If you're a Christian and you take biblical values and what you know about God's, God's reign and his kingdom, and think of that next to and try to align the direction the world is going and the way politics work and the individuals in those positions, a lot of times there's, there's quite a gap there, isn't there? And we can strongly disagree. In many cases, we should strongly and sometimes vocally disagree. But it does not give us reason to disrespect. I've been troubled in um, election seasons 
to see Christians engaging in very um, heated debates, especially on social media, sometimes with other Christians and at times with unbelievers, at least before a watching world of unbelievers, and be very strident and harsh about political issues and political candidates, even to the to the um, to taking the step of of which which some would be very um, quick to do to to see something that looks bad about a candidate an article or or somebody's opinion and then to share that and repost that as truth when in fact it may not be true in some cases it's not true there's just an automatic instinctive response in christians to say no we don't want that and even sometimes fall prey to wrong attitudes and disrespect and sin before a watching world that's the idea. That's what Paul's emphasizing here, is that we have this role of being, being in submission and having an attitude of respect. And so we have to be careful about our attitudes. Yes, it is certainly our right to disagree, but not to defy unless we are called to do something that disobeys the Word of God, as we know from Scripture. So, again, just, just summarizing here, this is about our response to authority. So this, this is one of the ways that people in our our lives should encounter gospel-shaped humility. And then a second way is our positive presence in our community. And uh, that sounds a little, a little vague, but I'm just trying to put these, these ideas together. And I think as we look at them, you'll understand. So he says at the end of uh, verse 1, to be ready for every good work. Verse 2, speak evil of no one, peaceable, gentle, showing all humility to all men. So, ready for every good work, generally doing what benefits and blesses others. Are you known in your neighborhood? Do the people who live next door and across from you know you as this kind of person, one who, who does what blesses and benefits others? This can be very practical, right? I know some of you help shovel your neighbor's driveways when it snows. I know some of you take soup to a neighbor when they're sick. That's the idea. Now, it certainly can be more extensive than that, can be more involved than that, but I think those are some of the simple things that we do that, that show them that we care about them, and, and we're ready. The idea is we're prepared. It's, it's something we've already thought about and determined to do. We're going to bless those people who are around us. Verse 2, speaking evil of no one. Evil is the idea of, of saying things that are damaging and insulting and slanderous to demean someone, especially to others. And again, it doesn't mean that we will agree with everyone, but it means that we refrain from demeaning anyone. When there is strong disagreement, we can quickly get nasty, can't we? And whether it's to their face, but often it's to somebody else or in a public forum to say things about people that are harsh and hard and damaging. He says, humble Christians, gospel-shaped humility does not look like that. People will not encounter that with you. In fact, the, the grammar here is, is to stop doing this. It's the idea of, okay, if you're doing this, stop. It has to end. Then the word peaceable, literally to not fight. Again, it's, it's a negative. It's, hey, if you're doing this, you've got to stop. Stop fighting. Stop bickering. Stop quarreling is the idea. And there are people who, who like, it seems, to stir up controversy, whether it's among Christians or with unbelievers, and are looking for debate. He says, don't be like that. Be known 
or being a peaceable person. And then, and then the word gentle. I like one definition of, of this word gentle. Sweet reasonableness. Sweet reasonableness. Are you known for that? Do the people around you, the people that you work with, know you as being that kind of person? It means you're approachable. You're entreatable. You're willing to work toward agreement, not compromising truth, but working toward understanding with other people. You're that kind of a person. And then again, showing all humility to all men. And this word translated humility here, you might see in a translation, it is translated sometimes gentleness or even courteous or something like that. And it includes the idea that we think of as humility, of having a right, honest view of yourself as not being superior to others. But it's a little bit more specific. It is the idea of of being kind to other people. So you show humility by being kind to them. Are you a nice person? That's what it means. God is a nice God. He is kind. We saw that in the description here. He showed his kindness toward us. Yes, he is holy and just. And yes, God has anger, righteous anger. But he's also known for being nice, for being kind. Jesus was known for being that kind of individual. And that's what he's calling us here to. Now, what one of the commentaries says this about, about this whole section, verses 1 and 2, and especially that last phrase about humility. This has evangelistic overtones not just concerned with a Christian's reputation in the world. In other words, what he's, what he's saying is that, that, yes, Christians should be known for the, being th- these kinds of people, but it's more than just how people know you. It's the impact that your life has on them. And that's what Paul's been emphasizing in Titus, right? That we would live according to what we know Yes, to honor God, but also because it gives people a right view of who God is and can even be used to attract them to truth and to the gospel, that we adorn the doctrine of God in that way. So there is a biblical imperative to not only declare the gospel, but to speak to others and to treat others in a humble way. Go back a page or two to your left to 2 Timothy Chapter 2. 2 Timothy chapter 2. And look at verse 23. 2 Timothy 2 verse 23. Paul says, But avoid foolish and ignorant disputes, knowing they generate strife. Verse 24. And a servant of the Lord must not quarrel, but be gentle to all. Able to teach. Patient. In humility, so you're hearing echoes, right? You're hearing echoes of what he said to Titus. Being gentle, patient, not quarreling. In humility, yes, correcting, telling them the truth, calling them to repent. Those who are in opposition, if God perhaps will grant them repentance so that they may know the truth. There's great hope in in those words. God has the prerogative and the power to help people understand truth and to embrace it. Verse 26, and that they may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil, having been taken captive by him to do his will. So you see those, those ideas there of humility and gentleness and patience in connection with reaching a person who has turned away from God. Then look at uh, 1 Peter chapter 3. 1 
First Peter chapter 3. And here are verses that we've looked at together on Wednesday nights as we've had our discussions on evangelism. And look at what he says in 1 Peter 3, verse 15. 1 Peter 3, 15 says, But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, and always be ready to give a defense, a logical answer, to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you, with meekness and fear. There's the idea. Gentleness, humility, right? Not arrogance, not belligerence, but with gentleness. So, so here we find this idea that, as, as that commentator says, there are evangelistic overtones to this gentleness and humility, and we are called to speak the gospel in a way that shows that humility. So this gives us a sense of responsibility, doesn't it? These are instructions that show us what gospel-shaped humility looks like. But Paul's emphasis here, back in Titus chapter 3, is on the motivation. So let's look at what he says about the motivation and see why gospel-shaped humility is a reasonable pursuit. Paul's being a little bit persuasive here. He's providing his reasons for what he's saying. And that's what he introduces there in verse 3 with the word for, F-O-R. He's saying, let me tell you why. Here is the reason for what I just said. Treating all people with kindness and courtesy and and respect and humility is reasonable and, and there's a logical basis for it. And again, I'm going to categorize this in a couple of ways. First, The first reason is our common human condition. By common, I mean something that we all share, that we have in common. And we see that our attitude and treatment of people outside of Christianity should be exceptionally humble and gracious and respectful because of this common human condition. He says in verse 3, we ourselves were also once. Now, when Paul says we ourselves, he's including Paul, isn't he? Paul was known as the most righteous possible Jew in his day. He made that claim himself, and he was probably right. He was known for keeping the requirements. So if, if Paul had to say, you know what, I needed this. I could not be who I am apart from what God did for me. So if Paul had to say that, then then everybody else is included. We're included as well. We need that outside help. So Paul includes himself in this common human condition. We were once foolish and disobedient and deceived. So he says we, we were lacking. The word foolish means not only deficient in knowledge, but probably didn't want to know the answers. Didn't want to know the truth. He says, we were foolish. We were departing from what is right, and we were rejecting what is right. Disobedience. So not only did we not know it, not want to know it, but we, we did not obey it. We did not obey God's revealed will. So we were deficient in knowing what God's will is and deficient in doing it. And then he says, deceived, and that's the idea of being led astray. Someone feeds you false information. Paul referred to that back in, in Timothy 
people who are led astray or taken captive by the devil. So, so someone feeds you false information to draw you away, and we are prone to listen to the wrong people and to embrace those wrong ideas. Uh, there's a uh, book of Puritan prayers called The Valley of Vision. Some of you might be aware of that. And uh, it's a collection of written expressions of worship and dependence on God from some of the Puritans. And uh, the phraseology is just so engaging and I think often uh, captures ideas of, of truth, but also reflects a person's heart in prayer in very precise ways. And it's a blessing to read, and sometimes I even use that to help formulate my own prayers to God. But, but in the Valley of Vision, there's one phrase that one of the writers uses of this idea of being deficient of what we, we need to know and understand to, to be reconciled to God. He says, we have no intellect to devise recovery. We have no intellect to devise recovery. In other words, we can't figure out the way back to God. We don't know by ourselves. We can't do it. So our common human condition includes being knowledge deficient. It also includes being appetite enslaved. He says we served in verse 3. We were serving various lusts and pleasures Lust is the word that means intense desire. So we have natural biological desires. We also have desires that we develop, appetites that, that we feed and that grow. And he says we, we were a slave to those. We pursued those. And pleasures, the Greek word hedone, we think of hedonism. So pursuing pleasure. So fulfilling appetites, pursuing pleasurable experiences and attempting to satisfy them, doing what feels good and avoiding what doesn't. And he says we were serving them, we were enslaved to them. So, so our common human condition includes being knowledge deficient when it comes to being restored to God and doing his will. Appetite enslaved and then also conflict prone. He says we were living in, so that was our default mode, Malice, hostile feelings toward other, others. Envy, and that's the idea of wanting to be ahead of others and wishing them, wishing bad things to happen to them if we're not. Hateful, hating one another. So there is resentment, there is prejudice, there is violence among people. And he's speaking universally here, we all. We, and maybe you would say, well, I, I haven't thought all those thoughts. I haven't done all those actions, and that's true. We're all susceptible to them. And in some degree, the world as a whole has thought and pursued and acted in these ways. And, and there's conflict. So he says hating and hating one another. And in every, every relationship, there's conflict, right? There's always conflict. And sometimes it can grow very hostile. So, so here's Paul, this very righteous man. And he includes Titus in this as well. So if Paul and Titus had these deficiencies, then we are certainly included in that when he says we also. And, and what that brings us to then is, is that there's only one solution. So if this is our condition and we're all in this condition 
then, then there's only one possible solution. You know, in, in life, if you're struggling at a job or you're struggling with your health or struggling with decisions, you can pretty much always find help. There's someone you can go to, you can get more training, you can change course, um, you can get a, a jump start, somebody can help you, and, and you can learn how to be a better person, how to uh, be a productive member of society, but we cannot help ourselves when it comes to our relationship with God. There's nothing that you have done or can do to restore you to God or improve your relationship with God. So Paul is saying, this is why we're humble. This is why we're humble. Because there's only one possible solution. He says, verse 4, But when the kindness and the love of God our Savior toward man appeared, and uh, you'll notice that sounds a lot like what he said back in chapter 2, verse 11, The grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. That's speaking of the coming of Christ to this earth that we read about a little bit ago in Philippians chapter 2. So Christ came. His God's kindness and love appeared in the form of Christ. And now notice the negative. Not by works of righteousness we have done. So again, Paul, the one who accomplished that extreme degree of righteousness, said, nope. That doesn't count for anything with God. And we did not get to where we are by ourselves. These are, these are great gospel verses if you want to share the gospel with somebody. But the primary implication of these verses is not to share the gospel with an unbeliever, but for believers to grasp what God has already done for them. He's saying, here is how you live in humility, and then let me tell you why. And the why is because you could not help yourself. There was only one possible solution, and that is, as he says in verse 5, his mercy. Mercy is pity. Mercy means that he did not give you what you deserved. He saved us. He has rescued you. God's predisposition of mercy is the cause of your and my being saved. It means there's nothing about us that made him favorable toward us, that made him like us. It's only him. He is our Savior. God our Savior, verse 4. Jesus Christ our Savior, verse 6. So, so what are we? We are sinners. Who is he? He's the Savior, the merciful, kind, gracious, loving Savior. And he does for us what we could never do for ourselves. Now, let me show you something in this theologically rich, gospel-packed section of Scripture, starting here in uh, the last part of of verse 5. Look what he says. He saved us through the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit. Our sins defile us. And there's only one way for us to be cleansed from that defilement. And that is the washing, the cleansing that God does in us. He accomplishes that through Jesus' blood that was shed for us. And he accomplishes that by a work of the Holy Spirit in us when he makes us a new person. When he regenerates us. And you know what that takes care of? Your past. Whatever accumulation of wrong you've committed against God can be washed away by the work of God in your life. 
And as a Christian, you and I can look at our past and say, yep, there were some, some problems and there were some things I did that were really wrong and maybe some major sins. But you know what? God has washed that away. You cannot wash away your own sins. He does that for you. That takes care of your past. Verse 6, whom he poured out on us abundantly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. Speaking of the Holy Spirit, so the Holy Spirit now is with you. He is in you. Verse 7, that having been justified by his grace, to be justified is to be made righteous. So God takes the righteousness of Jesus Christ and he counts it for you. That's what it means to be justified. So you now have a cleansed heart, a new life. You've been declared righteous as a free gift to you. You have a new standing with God. You are right with God. Can you do that for yourself? You can't, can you? So you can't wash away your sins. You can't work your way into a right standing with your creator, your sovereign, your Lord, your God. You can't do that. He has to do that for you. And that gives you a present standing with God. You have been justified. You are right with God. As a Christian, you can say that. I am right with God. But then look further. At the end of verse 7, that we should become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. So if the washing takes care of the past and justification takes care of your present relationship with God, what else does God do for you? He gives you a whole new destiny, doesn't he? And he orients you forward and he pledges to you something that is yours now, but you will come into possession, full possession of it later, and that is eternal life. He has promised you a future, something that you will one day fully possess And it is not property, it is not money, it is something with infinite, unfathomable value. And that's called eternal life. Christian, let's never get used to that word, that phrase, that idea of eternal life. It's real. And God promises that to you, and you cannot somehow secure eternal life for yourself. You can't determine your destiny. You can't secure your destiny. But God can, and he does. And he provides that and promises that through Christ. So the point is, we should be humble because God has done for us what we can never do for ourselves. How can we say, oh, look at me, I'm a Christian, and even have a little bit of a feeling of superiority? We just can't, can we? Because everything we are Everything you have as a Christian, God has provided for you. He has done for you. And so you say, well, there's no other real way to think or to live than to be humble. Now, I want us to think in in terms of some ways to grow in this because uh, this is something for us to, to definitely think about in terms of how can I cultivate this gospel shaped humility? How can I recover, if necessary, gospel-shaped humility? How can I be more humble in a way that's shaped by the gospel? Well, a few principles. One is to welcome the Holy Spirit to produce new attitudes in you. You Remember what I read earlier from, from the book of Matthew where Jesus said, Come to me, all you who labor and you're heavy laden, I'll give you rest. 
I am meek and lowly in heart. That word meek is the same word as the word humble here, humility in Titus 3 verse 2. We read a similar word in Philippians 2 describing Christ. This is a character of Christ-likeness. God calls us to be like Jesus in this way. And we know that, that as a Christian, the Holy Spirit resides in us, and he is producing his fruit, the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, right? Meekness, self-control, and faith. So, so the Holy Spirit is producing these in us, and it's our place to want that change to happen, to yield to God's Spirit, to welcome him to do this work in us. And so I wonder if you might even turn that into kind of a prayer. Lord, show me where this is lacking. Convict me of ways that I fall short of these attitudes that constitute gospel-shaped humility. Will you show me? And you open your heart to that and say, Lord, I want to be this kind of a person. So you direct me and you change me. And then whether something is revealed to you right away or you become aware of an unhumble attitude along the way, repent of that and say, God, this is wrong. I see it. I acknowledge it. And uh, I don't want that in my heart. I don't want that in my life. You might even have to go back to somebody and say, the way I spoke to you, the way I responded to you, the way I've engaged with you has been wrong. And I ask you to forgive me. If it's a non-Christian, you can even acknowledge to them and say, you know what, that, that is not the way that I as a believer should treat other people. It was wrong when I did that. Repent of superiority. Repent of, of apathy. Repent of isolation from unbelievers. He's calling us here to engage with the world around us. So repent of those ways that we either show them a wrong view of Christ or no view at all by apathy. And then Paul, Paul says here in, in, in verse 1, remind them. So they knew about this, didn't they? They'd heard it before. And he's telling Titus, tell them again. Bring it up. Keep it before them. So I think we need reminding as well, don't we? We need to be reminded of how God has treated us graciously. I mean, just go through this passage and put your finger on them and, and, and just in your heart, maybe later today. God, thank you for your kindness. Thank you for your love. Thank you for your mercy. Thank you for saving me. Thank you for washing me. Thank you for giving me your spirit. Thank you for justifying me. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for giving me hope and eternal life. Just make that a time of worshiping God. That'll refresh your memory, won't it? But then, but then remember how it should be impacting you and the way that you interact with others. Just remind yourself regularly, frequently, of how God has shown graciousness to you. The gospel should keep us humble. And if you're ever feeling superior to people, ever wrestling with pride, ever just feeling like I need to, to really improve and grow in the way that I think of others, especially unbelievers and the people you engage with day by day, just remember, he saved you. He rescued you. All you can be is thankful and grateful 
and gracious to others who need to be rescued, to be saved as well. It should not fill us with pride or superiority, but with wonder and appreciation and a desire to share with others what God in his grace has done for you. I'm going to read the words of a hymn. I'm going to add a little bit of comment to it. And uh, you may know this hymn. I'd just like you to think about these words. It's an old hymn written by Isaac Watts. And just just listen, would you, and, and just kind of take my highlighting and my coloring and my commentary as a way of thinking about these truths. It starts with the word, alas. We don't use that word, do we? Alas. Let me give you a current translation. Really? Really? Really did my Savior bleed? And did my Sovereign die? Would He devote that sacred head for such a worm as I? Was it for crimes that I have done He groaned upon the tree? Amazing pity, grace, unknown, and love beyond degree. Well might the sun in darkness hide and shut his glories in when Christ, the mighty maker, died for man, the creature's sin. Drops of grief, tears, can never repay the debt of love I owe. Here, Lord, I give myself away. It's all that I can do. Father, we pray that the overwhelming reality of your grace in our lives would move us to worship, to be in awe, to love you, to give our lives to you, but also would change and shape how we view and how we treat the people around us, whether those who are the closest to us, our husbands, our wives, our children, our parents, our family members, church members, friends, as well as those who we would say are really not close to you, unbelievers, neighbors, co-workers, classmates, and those who are unfriendly, even hostile toward us because of who we are as Christians. So help us, I pray, to be like Christ in these ways and to always be in awe, really, that you are this kind of God and have shown us this kind of love. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen.